The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. About eight months ago, our world was turned upside down. And since March, that we've been dealing with the coronavirus. And it's been seven months since April that we have been in First Peter with the prayer that as our world has been turned upside down, that First Peter would turn it right side up, that we would be able to think rightly about our place as citizens of heaven and therefore exiles on earth. What the Christian faith does is it gives us a panoramic perspective so that we don't get caught in the nowism of what's happening. So we put blinders on and suddenly everything becomes about mass or everything becomes about an election or everything becomes about what we're going through right now. And what the Christian faith does is it like puts us up into an airplane and shows us the panoramic perspective of eternity so that our world can be turned right side up and understand what God is up to and what He calls us to. So I want to see it in First Peter as this is the last sermon in First Peter. It's what He does for us today. First Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 10, reading to the end of the letter. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is, in, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're asking that now in this moment you would give us a grace to see ourselves rightly and to understand rightly that without you we have despair. Without you we have nothing. Apart from you we can do nothing. If you don't build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. If you don't watch over the city, those who stay awake do so in vain. Unless you build your church, Lord Jesus, this sermon and this service will be in vain. Help us to see ourselves and our, our inability rightly. And rather than despair, look to you, Jesus. See you rightly and take heart. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let us take heart 
seeing you rightly. And oh God, let us see your, your purposes. They will ripen fast. You are on your throne. You are working your good, pleasing, and perfect will. Help us, Lord, to rest. Knowing that you know best, knowing that you're in control, speak to us your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. In this final closing section of 1 Peter, we see three things. We see Peter tell us what God will do. We see that in verses 10 through 11. What God will do. And then secondly, we see what we are to do, what we must do in verse 12. And then we get to see what we do together, the churches do. So what God will do, what we must do, and what the churches do together. Let's start with verse 10 as you see what God will do. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Did you notice the time frame that he gives? He says, after you suffered a little while. Doesn't eight months of coronavirus feel like forever? It's so easy to look at what's happening and to feel like this is forever. When in fact, Peter can say, what you're going to face in a fallen world, the hostility, how long is it going to last? Your whole life. As long as you live in this fallen world, you will face the hostility of a fallen world as a citizen of heaven, exile on earth. While you're on earth, you're going to suffer. But he can call it a little while. Your whole life, a little while. This is what he does. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says the same phrase. In this you rejoice, though now, even though now, for a little while. Same exact phrase. For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Throughout the course of your whole life, you will feel the grief that comes from living in a fallen world. And unless you can put it into this panoramic perspective, you will feel the tyranny of time. It will feel like forever. Everything will get disoriented unless you can say, this life is a vapor. This is a little while. A little while in comparison to what? In comparison to, verse 10, eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, the little while that you're experiencing has to always be put into its perspective lest you lose sight of all that God has promised, all that he has done. He has not promised you that as you live in this life and feel like you just get buried, 
by so many problems, by so much suffering, by so much confusion and heartache and everything that's happening and you're getting buried under it, God does not promise that I'm going to come and remove half of it so that it won't be as heavy. He promises that I will help you bear under all of it and then glory is coming where I remove all of it and put in its place the weight of glory, the weight of the goodness of being in my presence face to face, no more curse, no more tears, just fellowship with me. I'm going to replace that soon. A little while. Eternal Glory. This is so important. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in contrasting the, the tyranny of time with eternal glory. Quote, there is only one thing to do with time, and that is to take it and put it into the grand context of eternity. How many of our problems come because we don't do that? We don't take time. We just sit under it and moan under it. But he's saying, take it and put it somewhere in the grand context of eternity. When you and I look forward, 10 years seems like a terribly long time. Eight months, I would say, feels like a terribly long time. A hundred years? Impossible. A thousand? A million? Who can even imagine it? But try to think of endless time. Millions upon millions upon millions of years, that is eternity. Take time and put it into that context. What is this life? It is a moment. If you look at your calendar, a year feels like forever, and it is impossible tyranny. But put your time into God's eternity and it will feel like a little while. That's God taking where we're at and putting it right side up. What's happening is just a little while. And the question is, he does not do this. He doesn't say, well, therefore suffering is light, nothing not hard. He, he acknowledges throughout this letter, suffering is hard. It is strong. But he says our God is stronger. The God of all grace is going to do something. And here it is. This God of all grace is doing something with reference to eternal glory even in this little while. What is that? What is God doing in this little while? You see it in verse 10. The God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He starts with God's past grace. The God of all grace called you. You are chosen. Remember 1 Peter 2.9? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you were in darkness. Now you're in light. Who did that? Who gets the credit for it? That's God's 
grace. He chose you in eternity past. That's grace with a destination in mind, eternal glory. And even though you were in darkness at one time, He called you at a moment in time, out of darkness, into marvelous light. That is past grace. Chosen in eternity past for this destination of eternal glory, called you at a specific time so that now you're in light. What about the rest of the time? Here's where we get future grace. What will he do? He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is grace, that God would choose you, chosen before the foundation of the world in eternity past, at a moment in time, called And with that destination in mind, He will keep you and He will bring you. That's the whole point of this verse, verse 10. God is going to make sure that you make it. He is going to make sure that the God who began the good work will complete it, that there will be no fallout in the children of God, that everybody that is chosen and called for that eternal glory will make it to eternal glory. 1 Peter 1.5, you are guarded by God's power for that salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. No fallout. Notice how sure it is. He doesn't say those he justified, he will glorify. Those who are chosen those who are called, those who are justified are as good as glorified. The Father who chose you, the Spirit who applies the work of Jesus dying for you, forgiving your sins, He's going to make sure that all His children make it. What's happening in this little time? Saying, your father is going to make sure that you make it. It would not make any sense for us to now go through and try to establish a little bit of nuance in distinction with all these four terms. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. That's not the point. It's to show you this shade of nuance, this shade of nuance. It is a cumulative effect to say God will definitely keep you, strengthen you. You will make it. You are, in fact, because of God's power, going to make it to eternal glory. And if you understand that, Something is going to happen. You are going to be a worshiper who takes theology and always translates it to doxology because that's what Peter does here. Notice what he says in verse 11. To him be the dominion 
forever and ever. Amen. The response is not one of anxiety. Can I figure it out? Can I really do it? Am I strong enough, smart enough, wise enough? Do I have enough perseverance for this? No, no, no. The perseverance of the saints is always based on the preservation of God. His preserving power. It's the same word that he uses in 1 Peter 5, 6. Put yourself under the mighty hand of God. Same word for dominion. In the mighty hand of God. Chosen. Called. Kept. And He will, in that mighty hand, bring you to eternal glory. He is not letting go. So he gets the praise. It's his dominion. It's his might. Do you feel this? He should use his mighty power to crush us. That's what we deserve for our sin. And in our place, It was the Father's good pleasure to crush His Son so that we wouldn't be, so that by His wounds we're healed, so that it could be a sure thing that all those that the Father saves, He keeps. So He gets the praise. That's why grace is called amazing. Therefore, that's what God will do. Then, verse 12, what do we do? Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he tells us that Silvanus, who we know more commonly as Silas, partner of Paul, second missionary journey, this Silas, this, this phrase, by him I have written briefly to you, means by him bringing the letter to you, We have the same phrase elsewhere to refer to the letter carrier. Silas is the one bringing the letter to you. He's saying he's a faithful brother. You can trust him. He's brought the letter to you. I'm writing this to you, and now you get an authoritative explanation of what this letter's been all about. What is it in Peter's mind? What is it? I've written briefly to you. Here it is exhorting and declaring that this, that is the whole letter, is the true grace of God. I love that. I just absolutely love that. I wonder if your view of the grace of God is big enough to include the commands of God. Because if the whole letter is the grace of God. It's not just talking about what God has already done. 
It's talking about the guidance that God is giving through his word. Do you really think that you deserve revelation from him? I remember totally like it was yesterday. In my PhD studies, I can remember one moment where I was reading uh, an ancient inscription about a person that was trying to worship a God that he didn't know and appealing to all the gods, and it read so torturously because he said, and if I did this unknowingly and offended somebody that I don't know as a God, then, then uh, I'll do this. If I didn't do this and didn't understand it, and then I, I did this, I, I apologize for that. And it's just like, if you don't have revelation from God to know what pleases him, what you should be doing, you feel like you're just in the dark. It is grace, sheer grace for God to say, that's thin ice. Don't go on that. That will kill you. It is sheer grace to say, resist the devil. This is what he's up to. This is what I'm doing in suffering. Don't be surprised by it. It is sheer grace. All of this revelation from God. We are not to thumb our nose at any of it but to receive it. And here he's saying, I've laid it out like a foundation. Don't just roll the scroll back up. Don't just archive it. Stand on it. All of this grace that's coming from the God of all grace, stand on it. Stand firm on it. Don't sit on the premises, don't lay down on the assumptions, stand on these promises. Like the promise, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to establish you. But notice that doesn't mean, therefore it doesn't matter what you do. It is his strengthening and establishing to do what? To keep standing firm. If you want to know what the main point of this letter is, it's right there. Stand firm in the true grace of God as elect exiles. This letter is the true grace of God laid out as a foundation. Stand on it. Don't let Satan scare you away from it. Don't let the siren song of the world, like Paul says about Demas, in love with the world, has left. No. Stay and stand. But that's not all. Yes, we have to stand. Don't be moved. But notice Peter doesn't end there. He doesn't end there. He could just end with the main point like that, but he doesn't because he wants to say, even though you're supposed to stand firm, you don't stand alone, but you stand together. Verse 13, this is what the churches do. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He says, don't make the mistake thinking that you're standing on your own. You stand firm together. There's a family greeting that you give. This this kiss of love was often given in the context of 
corporate worship as a sign we're part of the same family. This is how the early church practiced this sense of family, the compelling witness that you're loving beyond your affinity group and age and stage to say we're all family. Whether we look alike, whether our backgrounds are the same, doesn't matter. We're family. Greet one another this way. And and yes, we can't do it during COVID, and not many Americans feel comfortable giving a kiss of love, more like a, a hearty handshake of affection. But it is to be expressed as family. We are in it together, standing firm together. And the expression of love is one of family. But Peter says, recognize it goes beyond these churches of Asia Minor. It also extends to this church in Rome. Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon. Why on earth does he say Babylon. The ancient city of Babylon is in ruins. He's not talking about that. He's talking about Babylon metaphorically because of the Old Testament as the ancient anti-God city. And he identifies Rome as that. Peter's in Rome, writing from Rome. And there's a church in Rome. And Peter says, this church in Rome, called Babylon, chosen like you and greets you. He started that way, saying, you Christians throughout Asia Minor, you're elect. You're chosen. And now he says, and so are the other churches. Like this church in Rome, chosen as elect Exiles. Remember, the, in the Old Testament, the people of God were exiled where? In Babylon. So you have to have a, a view of what Peter's doing. Can I just show that to you? Let's, let's remind ourselves of the story of Scripture. What does Babylon mean and why is it so important? It's important because in the biblical story, you have two seeds that then populate two cities. So if you just take the biblical story, you start with Genesis 3.15, understanding there are two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. 1 John 3 calls them the children of the devil and the children of God. Two types of humanity. Humanity divided into two basic groups. Not Jew and Gentile. Not Republican, Democrat, black, white, single, married. No, no. Children of God, children of the devil. That is the division of humanity. And when you see this serpent, you recognize that there is a cosmic story happening here, a conflict that God promises will always be there between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the promise is given there's going to be a winner. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head 
of the serpent. There's going to be warfare, but there's going to be a winner of the war, and the rest of the biblical story, you're waiting for that person, right? Uh, Benjamin Zander made the argument that nobody is truly musically tone deaf, that we all kind of instinctively know and can, can get ready for the next note. Like if I do da-da-da-da, da, you all know the right note. That should come. In the biblical story, you're waiting for that note, that, that resolution, that biblical place of home. But what happens is you keep getting introduced to people and your, your hopes get up and you're like, is this the one? Like, da, 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 da. Like, Whoa, that's not the right note. Time and time again, we're waiting for the one that's going to defeat the devil, that's going to bring salvation. And again and again and again, it's the wrong note. And early on, you're introduced to the children of the serpent. Why do you think, by the way, that John the Baptist calls the Pharisees brood of vipers, children of snakes? What's he doing? He's saying, you think you're part of the people of God, children of God, you're actually children of the devil. So so Jesus says that to the Pharisees. So these children of the devil, are they ever going to have a city that they settle into? Finally, we read in Genesis, they do. It's called Babel. Same word for Babylon. And in this ancient anti-God city, the, the children of the devil consolidate in their rebellion against God and in their pride want to build something that can go up to the heavens. And God judges it, scatters it, Until, in the biblical story, you get Babylon that comes up. But in the meantime, you're looking for the city of God. If there's a city of the serpent, where is the city of God? In Genesis, Abraham, we're told, could have built a city, but he didn't. He was looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. So where is this city going to be? Finally, you get Jerusalem, Zion, city of God. The, the ark that's had a temporary dwelling in Shiloh suddenly has a permanent place and a temple is built and it's supposed to be where the glory of God rests. And then in a shocking turn of the story, you've got Babylon against Jerusalem. 586 B.C. And what happens? You know the story? It looks like the anti-God city defeats the city of God. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The people of God live in exile in Babylon, in the anti-God city. But what we learn, already from Genesis and Exodus, by the way, when like Moses is told to build these things according to what he's seen in heaven. Everything here is the copy of the heavenly reality. So what looks like the, the city of the serpent defeated the city of God, we're told it's just a copy. If you have a really important 
will or something like that, and, and you make a copy of it, it looks like they just crumpled it up when actually it's just the copy. That's why in the rest of the biblical story you get Jesus coming from the Jerusalem above. The note finally sounds. He dies. He rises. He ascends again to the Jerusalem city of God. He sends his spirit. Suddenly the gospel begins to go out in the book of Acts like another conquest narrative where suddenly the word of God goes out and children of God are called from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you get to the point in this book where actually Peter says, this Babylon that you see show up again in Revelation 19 and it is destroyed forever. The lamb conquers. The Jerusalem above comes down so that now the children of God live in the city of God in the presence of God forever. That's where the story is going. Here is the punchline. Peter's saying that anti-city of God, God has actually, he's going to destroy it, but before that, he's infiltrated it. There's a church that's there in the midst of it, Just like Paul can say at the end of Philippians, those who are of Caesar's household greet you. God is infiltrating through the gospel into the very anti-city of God, and there's a church there worshiping God in the anti-God city. So what we're supposed to take from this, I think, is that it is a ditch to be a, a nationalism error or a fundamentalism error. Nationalism would say, well, the, the, the Rome becomes the Jerusalem. No, never, never. America does not become New Jerusalem ever. But also, that doesn't mean that we become fundamentalists and circle the wagons and think all we got to do is defend ourselves, siege mentality. It's not nationalism and it's not fundamentalism. It's evangelism is what he's saying. You're ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you because you know even in Satan's territory, Jesus reigns and he is taking his children back from the evil one. That's what he's up to right now, Peter says. There's the anti-God city. Look, we're living right in it and Jesus reigns over it. There's a church praising his name even here. He means for you to get a taste of the victory of Jesus. See the church as the miracle of God that it is and greet those who are in the family of God, part of the victory of God. Now, can you feel What a grace it is to end on this note, peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In the midst of tribulation and persecution, the God of all grace wants to give you peace. Just like the risen Jesus comes into the room of the disciples so afraid, 
so fearful, doors locked for fear of the Jews, he comes in and he says, peace be with you. My peace I give you. That's what he's doing here at the end of the letter. Now, here's my question. How do you apply this? I don't want you to think narrowly about application. I want you to think now of this whole letter. What does it mean? How do we respond to it? What is a good summary of it? This week, I was reading about the the Navy SEALs. And the Navy SEALs have an ethos statement on on the website, an ethos statement about who they are. I'm going to read part of it, just so you get a flavor of what I'm talking about. The Navy SEAL ethos. Quote, the Navy Sea, Air, and Land teams, I didn't know why they called it a SEAL team, that's why. Navy Sea, Air, and Land teams, SEAL teams, known as the Navy SEALs, are the U.S. Navy's primary special operations force, trained to operate in all environments for which they are named. In times of war or uncertainty, there's a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. Common citizens with uncommon desire to succeed. Forged by adversity, they stand alongside America's finest special operations forces to serve their country, the American people, and protect their way of life. I am that warrior. My trident is a symbol of honor and heritage bestowed upon me by the heroes that have gone before. It embodies the trust of those I have sworn to protect. By wearing the trident, I accept the responsibility of my chosen profession and way of life. It is a privilege that I must earn every day. My loyalty to country and team is beyond reproach. I humbly serve as a guardian to my fellow Americans, always ready to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. I don't advertise the nature of my work nor seek recognition for my actions. I voluntarily accept the inherent hazards of my profession, placing the welfare and security of others before my own. I serve with honor on and off the battlefield, the ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstance, sets me apart from others. Uncompromising integrity is my standard. My character and honor are steadfast, and my word is my bond. That's the Navy SEAL ethos statement. And, and it's, it's quite inspiring. Yet, Have you ever thought the letter of 1 Peter is giving you our Christian ethos statement? Do you know who you are? This letter, the true grace of God, is telling you who you are. I'm a Christian, a worshiper of the triune God, foreknown by the Father, set apart by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. I live to obey Jesus, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, refined in the fire of affliction, rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Though I don't see Jesus, I love him and I rejoice in him. I'm a citizen of heaven, an elect exile, a child of God by his great mercy, caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have an inheritance 
kept in heaven for me, undefiled, unfading. And I am kept for it by the power of God. During this time of exile, I hope fully. I'm called to be holy. I love earnestly. I fear my Father. I long for the milk of the Word to grow up into salvation. I have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm a living stone, part of a spiritual house, a a priesthood making sacrifices to God. I'm a chosen race, royal priesthood, people for God's own possession, called out of darkness into his marvelous light, declaring his excellencies always, once a stranger to the mercy of God, now drenched in mercy. I fight to death the sin that wages war against my soul. I love the brotherhood. I honor those in authority. I fear only God. Hope only in God. I was once straying like a sheep, but I now belong to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. He has left me steps to follow, a mindset to adopt. I'm armed for suffering. I'm not surprised by the fiery trial. I have brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. I don't repay evil for evil. I bless and don't curse. I'm not afraid of those in opposition against me because I honor Jesus as holy in my heart, hot and ready to give a reason for the hope that is in me. I entrust my soul to a faithful creator in doing good. I put myself under the mighty hand of God knowing he will save me. He will exalt me. He will bring me. I'm in his mighty hand, chosen, called, justified, will be glorified. I resist the devil and I will not let him scare me from Jesus. I will not let the world call me away from Jesus. I've been given the true grace of God, and I stand in it until he takes me home. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm chosen, not forsaken. I am a child of God. This is our ethos. This is who we are. I'm ready to sing it. Let's pray. Father, I ask, oh God, that we would not allow anyone to rob us of our identity, to not settle for any counterfeit identities, that we would understand once again and thank you that we don't earn this every day. No, no, no. We do not earn an identity. We do not achieve an identity. We receive an identity from you. And therefore, we're not just walking to victory, but from victory. Not to earn an identity, but we live from the identity that you give us. I am who you say I am. We are who you say we are. Give us grace, God of all grace, to get it right, to say it 
right, to stand on it firmly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.